0: our sermon for this morning is going to come from the Gospel of Luke, and so if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 19, we're going to look first at Luke 19, and then we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to all stay together here. Um, we're going to start with Luke 19, and we're going to read Luke's account of uh, the triumphal entry of Christ coming into the city of Jerusalem. And after that, we're going to move to Luke's account of the crucifixion. We're going to read about that, too, and that's found in Luke 23. And so uh, after taking a look at Luke 19, we're going to turn together to Luke 23 and uh, read a couple of selections from there as well. And so um, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. And as we hear this, let's remember that this is the very and the true Word of God. So Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As He went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When He came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Let's turn now to uh, the 23rd chapter of Luke. And we're going to read a couple of selections, three selections, one through five, and then 13 to 24. And then I'm actually going to start reading a little bit sooner than 44. I'm going to read... starting at 35 until verse 49. And so this is an account of Christ's crucifixion. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Now let's jump to uh, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see, and he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And then I'm going to to continue at verse 35 and read into verse 49. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said... Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When the people who were gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's say a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the true and innocent King. This morning, as we hear from Your Word, we pray that You'd give us receptive hearts to hear. You would open our ears to listen. We pray this morning that anything that I say that doesn't come from You would quickly fall to the ground and pass away, and it would be forgotten. We also pray that all that is from You would remain and would strengthen us in faith, would encourage us to praise, would fill us with love for Your Son, and would bind us to Him. Speak, Lord, we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, people of God... I remember many years ago when I was in high school, I had a pretty incredible opportunity. That opportunity was to go to London with my choir. Uh, It was quite an irregular choir tour. We went and we sang in different cathedrals and abbeys around London and and the countryside of England. We had one opportunity to go to the Tower of London, and there we sang a concert. And after that, we had some time to tour around. Now the crown jewels are housed at the Tower of London, and so I, along with several other of the choir members, were able to go and take a look at the opulent splendor of these crown jewels. And playing in the background, as we sort of walked through these displays and saw the jewel-encrusted crowns, was, uh, were some clips from the 50s when Queen Elizabeth became and was crowned queen. It was quite the sight, really. People from all across the city gathered and surrounded her as she received her crown. You know, she's in her 80s now. It's probably not too much longer until we'll see another coronation of the next king of England. And at that time, I'm sure the whole world will tune in and watch as the king goes to be crowned and is named the constitutional monarch of all of the lands that England controls. And this has been something that's been taking place since the first king of Normandy, William the Conqueror, came, vanquished his enemies, and had a crown placed on his head, which said that he was the ruler of all those lands. In this account, in this gospel account that Luke gives to us, he talks about a coronation as well. But it's quite different from the coronation that we see in England. There are some similarities to be sure. But Christ's coronation is one that ends on a cross, hanging from a tree. And Christ's coronation is one that's infused with a whole lot more meaning than any coronation of a British monarch. Because one of the things that we know is that Israel, for a long time, for hundreds of years, for generations upon generation, Israel had been looking forward to the time when the promised king would come. There were all sorts of prophecies given in the Old Testament of a king who would come from David's line who, se- who the scepter would never depart from his hands. The people of Israel had looked forward for generations to the king who would come and reign forever on his father David's throne. And in Luke's account of the triumphal entry and in his account of the crucifixion, we're given Christ's coronation And we're given all sorts of testimony about Christ being king. And so this morning, that's what we're going to go through. We're going to take a look at the account that Luke gives to us, and we're going to see all of the ways that Luke fills his account with meaning to show that Christ Jesus is the promised innocent king who would come and reign. And as we talk about this account of Luke, and as we talk about all the ways that he describes that Christ is royal and is king, we're going to be confronted with the question, how is it that we're going to respond to this information? Because in this story, we're given a couple of different ways of responding. And so the question for us will be, will we join our voices with those who sung praise to this king as he entered Jerusalem? Or will we be be the ones that seek to silence that praise? And as we talk about Christ's coronation and His crucifixion, the question will come to us, will will we be like those who witnessed it and then left unchanged? Or will we be the ones who remain? Who claim the scandal of this King? And worship Him? That's what we're going to be talking about. And so we're going to talk about first about how Christ is shown in Luke to be this innocent king. And then we're going to be talking about those couple of different ways that people responded to him. And last, we're going to talk about that coronation event when he was hung from a tree. Those are the three things we're going to talk about this morning. So first, Christ the innocent king. Now there are several ways that we have here. I think I have six ways that Luke alludes to the fact that Christ is king. And he brings in to his account all sorts of Old Testament richness that helps us to see who this Jesus is, that he is king. And so I'm going to work my way through those and talk about all the ways that Luke signals these things to us. And so first, right away at the beginning of this story, we have an allusion to Genesis 49, verses 11 and 12. And it's interesting the way that it happens. This story of Luke in Luke 19 starts with Jesus telling his disciples to go and to grab a colt. And this colt is said that it will be tied up. And this this language of tied is actually used over and over again. It's, it's, It's kind of interesting. He says, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. That's one instance of tied. Which no one has ever ridden. untie it, he says that, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Three, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying it, that's four, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? That's five instances of the word tying and untying used in just a couple of verses. And at first, when you read that, it's like, wow, really overkill. They really want to accentuate the fact that this cult was tied up and they were trying to untie it. But one of the things that we should know is that anytime the scriptures repeat something, anytime something's repeated, we should take notice. Because that's generally t- trying to call our minds back to something, it's trying to make a point if there's something repeated. And so, with this repeated language of tying and untying a cult, there's no doubt. That the people of Israel who would encounter this and read this would have their mind called back to Genesis 49, 11 and 12. And this is what's said about those passages. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 10. It said this in Genesis 49. It says, talking about Judah, it offers this prophecy. It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And then it says this, Tying his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vestures in the blood of grapes. And so this repetition of the language of tying and untying would have called the people's mind back to this prophecy that had been given to Judah ages ago. And this prophecy was that a king would come. This king would tie his colt to a choice vine, and this king would reign forever. The scepter would always be between his feet. And so right away, in the beginning of his narrative, Luke is calling our minds back to Genesis and saying, pay attention, because this colt that's tied, this is the colt of that king that was prophesied, that king that's been looked forward to since the blessing of Judah. And so that's the first thing, the first clue that Luke gives to us that this Jesus is the King. The second one comes shortly after that. The second is that the words of Christ's disciples are authoritative. Jesus sends His disciples into this town to get this colt, and they begin untying it, and the owner of this colt comes out and is understandably perturbed. Here are some some colt rustlers that have come to steal his colt, tied to his vine or his fence or whatever. And so he comes out and says, what are you guys doing? And these disciples say what the Lord told them to say. The Lord needs it. And it's kind of an amazing response. Right away, the owner of this colt says, oh, of course. Take it. So they're given the cult. And we see here that the followers of Jesus have authority when they speak His words. Throughout the whole of the Gospel of Luke, we're shown that Christ has authority when He speaks. He has authority over even the wind and the waves. When He speaks, people are healed. Food is multiplied to feed thousands. Thousands. And here we see that even the followers, even those sent by this great king, have authority. Just like those who had been sent by a monarch or a sovereign. If they spoke, they spoke with the authority of that king. And so the fact that these disciples have authority shows the kingship of Christ. Third. The third thing is the allusion to Zechariah 9, verse 9, that's given to us in this account. This illusion is very clear. Zechariah 9:9 9, 9 tells us this: it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so as Christ came into the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, he came in riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in so doing, those that saw it must have thought back, Zechariah prophesied about this. They said He said that our king, that our salvation would enter into our town riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so oftentimes when we hear this story, and if we hear people talking about the story, we rightly hear them emphasizing the fact that Christ was humble. He came into this town not as a conquering king on a war horse, but on a donkey. And that's true. He didn't come with the regular pomp and circumstance. He came humbly. But riding into the city on a donkey was a clear claim of his kingship. As he came into this city riding on the donkey, he was fulfilling a prophecy that the people would have known and he was pointing to the fact saying I am this king. I am the one your salvation coming to you. Humble and riding on a donkey. And so the fact that he came in on this colt showed the fact again that Christ was king. Fourth, the fourth way that Luke shows us that Christ is king is in the way that the people act in relation to Jesus. There are a couple things that the people do that show us that they believe that he's the king. The first is that they lay down their their cloaks, uh, the disciples lay down their cloaks over the donkey for Christ to sit on. You know, kings were never supposed to touch the animals that they rode upon, they would always sit upon a royal saddle. There is no saddle for Christ, but the disciples acknowledging that he was a man who was king laid their cloaks down so that he, as a king, could ride without touching this animal. And the crowd that sees him, they recognize that this is the case, and they respond in kind. They begin laying down their own cloaks on the ground so that this king could walk upon these cloaks. This is the exact same thing that the people of Israel did to Jehu when Jehu came to be crowned king. As he ascended the steps to be crowned king, they laid down their cloaks so that Jehu himself didn't need to touch the ground. This is recorded in 2 Kings 9. And again, the people are showing that they believe him to be a king by laying their cloaks in front of him. They also... Quoted a very interesting psalm. They quoted Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says this, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Christ came into the city, that's the psalm that was on the lips of these people, they would proclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they actually intensify this, because they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." Psalm 118 was the coronation psalm. It was the psalm that was recited by the people when the king would be crowned and named the ruler. And so in saying this, the people are acknowledging, this is the king. And Luke shares it with us so that there can be no doubt these people believed Christ to be the king. Christ does come in humility on this cult. And the fact is, is that He comes the same way to us today in humility. He's still a king. But He never comes in the fullness of His glory to us. He comes humbly to us. And He comes and beckons. He knocks and asks that we open the door. He comes and says, take my yoke upon you. He says, because my yoke's easy. And my burden is light. The people at this time recognize that He was king. Will we do the same thing as He comes to us today in humility? The fifth. The fifth reason that, that Luke gives that He is king is actually given in the, the story of the crucifixion in the 23rd chapter When Christ is questioned by Pilate, Pilate asks, Are you a king? And Christ affirms that that's the case. Yes. It's as you say, he says. I am a king. He doesn't deny it. And the last, the last thing that we're shown, the last reason that we're given that he's a king, is actually nailed above Christ's head as he dies. As Christ is hung from a tree in verse 38 of chapter 23, we're told that it was written, This is the King of the Jews. This was a statement perhaps intended to mock because the people mocked him with those words. But nonetheless, it was an accurate depiction of who this man was who came into Jerusalem to his coronation on a cross. But not only was he a king, he was an innocent king. And I I, I will just run through this very quickly. He was proclaimed innocent by Pilate. He was proclaimed innocent by Herod. He was said to be righteous by the centurion at the time of his death. And even the people who had called for his death beat their breasts before they left because they acknowledged his innocence. So the first thing that Luke gives to us is this claim that Christ is a king and that he's an innocent one. And so for the question for us then becomes, how are we going to respond? And in this story, we're also told two ways that people respond to Christ's kingship. The first one is given to us at the crowd, the crowd that sees his coming. The crowd sees his coming, and as we says, laid down palm branches, laid down their cloaks. They proclaimed him king, and they sang praises to his name. And what they sang praises was very interesting. This is what they said. It says that they said, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Glory in the highest is what they said. Is there another time that we can remember hearing those words? Glory in the highest. Well, this is repeating the words of Luke 2 that was sung by the angels when Christ came to earth. When they proclaimed his birth, they said, Glory in the highest and they said, and peace to earth. In Christ coming into this city, the people respond by picking up those words of the angels and responding by saying, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. You see, oftentimes as we read this, we're we're tempted to think that these people wanted just a political leader. And, And clearly that was some of the expectations of who Christ was to be. But the fact is, is that maybe these people spoke more than they understood But they understood that his reign was to be more than just an earthly one, because as he came into town, they proclaimed peace not only to earth, but to heaven, recognizing that his rule was to be broader than just earth. And these people were willing to lay down their cloaks, their their very possessions, and have Christ trample on them with his donkey. I mean, the fact is, is that these people probably didn't own tons of sets of cloaks. They probably had one. And yet when the king came into town, they were willing to take off their own cloaks and lay it down because they recognized this ground is not fit for a king. But I will delight in having the king trample on this. That was the first way of responding. And today on Palm Sunday, are we people who desire to respond in the same way? Are we individuals who see the king coming and say, I want to voice praise? I want to praise the king. I want to lay down my goods at his feet in total abandon to him? Are we people who will cry with them, Peace in heaven because Christ has come? Glory in the highest. I pray so. Because there's another way of responding. And that way is is given to us by the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees see these people crying out in praise to Jesus and they try to stop it. And it's clear that they can't. And so they turn to Jesus and they say, tell these people to stop it. Tell them to cut it out. And Christ's response is so beautiful. Beautiful. He says that if they stop, that the very rocks will cry out in praise to Him. And that's always one of my favorite sections of this triumphal entry, when Christ proclaims that the rocks will cry out if the people are stopped. And you know what that says to us? It says to us that where God has ordained praise, that praise will come. If that praise is, is shut off, or if it is silenced, then the creation will begin to cry out in praise. It's a pretty beautiful and compelling section of this passage. Creation itself will cry out if we are silenced. And so one of the things that I did this week is that I listened to all the rocks that I passed by. I really did. I really did. And I stopped for a second, and I would look at the big ones. I would stop and look and see if they were crying out in praise. And I'd actually encourage you to do that this week. There are plenty of rocks around, and if you see one, stop. And listen, is it crying out in praise? Well, I, I haven't heard any. And you know what? That's actually a good thing. Because it means that Christ still has the praise of his people. God has ordained praise to be given to him. And as long as his church cries out in praise to him, the rocks won't need to pick up our slack. But I'll tell you what, the silent rocks are an encouragement to me. Because it means that His people, who He has called out of darkness, are still praising His name. And that's what we come to do when we come to worship Him. We come to praise so that the rocks need not pick up our slack. And so today on Palm Sunday, and every Sunday, and every day, let's be people who cry out in praise to our King. Because creation, we're told in Romans, is groaning for the return of the Lord. And they're willing to pick up the slack if we stop. But may it never be that Christ's church ceases its praise. But let us continue to lift it up and glory in our God. The one who's deserving of praise. May this be our response to Christ. Not the response of the Pharisees who sought to put an end to the praise, but the response of the adoring crowd who lifted up praises to this King. And you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I've said and that I've heard other preachers say is that this same crowd that was singing His praises on Sunday, five days later on Friday, were calling for His death. And there may be some truth to that, but Luke's account of this story doesn't sort of give us that notion, because in these next chapters, Luke says that the Pharisees are afraid of the crowd, that the crowd is hanging on Christ's words, and so there were people that were protecting him and keeping him from harm. There were always those faithful who were willing to cry out in praise to him. But there were his committed opponents who stood opposed to him. And at the time of Christ's trial, those opponents had gained strength and gained boldness, and they cried out for his death. And what's interesting is that they stood before Pilate, the judge, and in their own Sanhedrin, in their own courts, they had convicted Christ of blasphemy. But what's interesting is that the Romans didn't care about blasphemy. And so they had to try to convict Jesus of something else. And so in Luke 23, they accuse him of insurrection, of a sort of being a terrorist. They, claim, they say that he's claiming to be king and standing opposed to the Romans. They try to spin some lies to make people believe that he is, he is uh, trying, to, trying to overthrow the government, start an insurrection. These are the faithless opponents of Christ and what's interesting in Luke is that they're shown to be incredibly faithless because their biggest claim against Jesus and the biggest reason that they say that he deserves death is that he's inciting insurrection and yet who do they cry out for instead of Jesus they say release Barabbas to us Luke tells us this, it's, it's interesting, it says that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection. These people didn't care about insurrection, they just wanted to claim that Christ was doing it so that they could try to kill him. And so in this story, we're given two pictures, pictures of people willing to cry out in praise to God, cry out in praise to Christ, and we see a picture also of those who are his opponents. And so again, I say, I pray that we will be the ones eager to sing praise to God, that we will not be his opponents, but that we will join our voices and sing praise to our God. I'm seeing that my time is short, and so I'll try to wrap things up here. At the end of Luke's gospel account of these stories, we have the coronation of the great king. We have Christ's coronation. And this is the story of the crucifixion. And you know, in the times of David and the great kings of Israel, what would happen is that David's descendants would ride on a horse or on a donkey, like Solomon rode on a donkey, and they would come into the city to receive their crown. And this is what's happening in this story as well. Christ is riding on a donkey and he's entering into the city to receive his crown. And as he comes into the city, he receives that crown, doesn't he? It's actually not recorded for us in in Luke's account of the crucifixion, but we're told in other gospel accounts that Christ, because of the fact that he's a king, has a, a crown of thorns fashioned for him. And it's placed upon his head and they're to make him bleed and to cause him pain. He's given a robe to wear like a king. It's so that the crowd can mock him and make fun of him. But these unwitting opponents of Christ are actually providing the coronation of the great king of the universe. And that crown of thorns that was worn by Christ was a crown be fitting a king, and that that robe was fitting, for Christ was a king, and that the cross that Christ would be stretched upon was a fitting throne for the king of the universe. But still, in Luke's account, we're told that these are dark days, and in fact, darkness covers the earth from about the, starting at about the ninth hour. And as Jesus was put on the cross, the king upon his throne, darkness covered the earth. And it's good that darkness did because it hid something that was far worse. It hid hell itself coming to try to claim the king of glory. And it hid the fact that God himself came in anger against His Son. And as the shroud of darkness covered that hill where Christ was crucified, He bore the eternal wrath for all of our sins. And as He hung from that tree, He was instilled as King. But in a painful and in a dark way. And Luke says that something interesting happens that while darkness had covered the earth, the veil of the temple was rent in two. And again, it says that this is at about the ninth hour, and that's the hour right at the time that the priests would have been in the temple preparing for the sacrifices. And as they were in the temple, the veil was rent. And as Christ was experiencing the wrath of the Father, the veil that was to keep people from the presence of the Father was torn in two, saying that people can now come and stand boldly in the presence of God. Because all of the wrath that God had was spent on His Son, And in this dark and painful time, Christ was nonetheless crowned King and He nonetheless gave us the ability to stand in boldness before the presence of the King of the universe. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? It's incredible that we who are sinful nonetheless because we trust in Christ, can stand with boldness, we're told in the New Testament, with boldness in the presence of God. And as Christ experienced the anger of his Father, that veil was torn so that we might be assured of the fact that we'll never experience that wrath. And it's because Christ was crowned King on that cross. And at the end, at that crucifixion, we're again given two responses of individuals. Some people saw it, and they beat their breasts, but then they went away. But we're told that other people, those who knew Jesus, including the women who had followed Him, they stayed. They stood at a distance, and they watched. And these are, again, the two potential responses for us. We're individuals who, in this week, will hear of the triumphal entry of Christ, and this Friday, we will hear again of the crucifixion and the scandalous death of our God, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. And what will be our response as we witness this crucifixion? Will we be those who are willing to acknowledge the fact that this man was innocent, that this man was righteous, shed a tear about that perhaps, beat our breast in a sign of desperation, and then leave, ultimately unchanged? You know, I was at a camp when I was in high school. I went to a camp. It was a a, a music camp. And my counselor read an account of the crucifixion. And my counselor at this camp was not a Christian himself. And in this account, he said, Isn't this unfortunate that this man who just wanted to teach us to be kind and accepting wasn't accepted himself and had to die? And a lot of people nodded in dissent. I think that my counselor was one of those folks who would have seen it and recognized his innocence and beaten his breast and left. Well, isn't that sad? But the other response is of those who knew Christ and desired to follow him, and that was to remain. It was to see Christ crowned king on a cross, dead for them, to accept the full scandal of that, and to stay. Will that be our response? To stay? I pray so. I pray so. There's one reason that we're able to stay. There's one reason that we can see the scandal of the crucifixion. There's one reason that we can hear the jeers of the crowd. There's one reason that we can experience the mocking of those that we know who don't know Christ. There's one reason that we can hear all that and nonetheless stay and profess faith in Christ. And the reason is this, is that Christ, as He was on that cross, He was able to see all of those individuals. And because He was fully God and fully man, He could see across time. He could see each and every one of us. And He not only could see just us, but He could see all the gunk And all of the sin and all of the corruption and all of the times that we would be faithless and all of the times we join our voices with the crowd calling for His crucifixion and all of the times that we join our voices with the Pharisees seeking to silence those who would worship Christ, He saw all of those times, knew of all of our sin, and what did He do? He stayed. He just stayed. And we know that he could have called a host of angels down to remove him from the cross and to show what kind of king he was, but he didn't. For our sake, he stayed. And in so doing, he saved us, provided complete redemption, and died. And so now, as we see Christ in all the scandal, will we stay too? I pray the answer will be yes. Because the fact is, is that it's worth it. Because Luke is right. Jesus was a king. And though he was crowned King on the cross first. He is now seated at the right hand of His Father where He's exchanged His crown of thorns for the victor's crown. And you see, He will return again one day. And at that day, creation itself will be released from its bonds and be able to lift up its voice in praise to the King. And at those Days, and that day we'll be able to join our voices with the rocks who are now crying out, with the sea lifting its voice, with the earth rumbling in praise to God, and we will be able to praise Him as well and say, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my King and my only salvation, and in that day we'll go to live with Him forever. Praise the Lord for this coronation of Jesus Christ on the cross which provided for us complete satisfaction for our sins. And praise the Lord for the hope that we have to go and live with Him one day in glory. This week, as we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Christ, stay. Stay. Amen.